The history of Jews in Britain is an often overlooked part of our history, and yet it is longer, deeper, and more violent than many would know. In this episode of the Present History Podcast, we're going to take a look at the history of Judaism, anti-Semitism, and Jewishness in Britain from the Roman era until today. So, let's dive in to a brief history of being Jewish and British. Evidence suggests that there may have been a Jewish presence in Britain from the early years of the Roman occupation. Jewish traders, officials and soldiers may have come over with the Roman forces and might have even set up small communities in places like Colchester, York, London and Exeter. However, the first recorded Jewish community can be found in 1070, brought over by William the Conqueror, a few years after his victory at the Battle of Hastings. William believed that their commercial skill and incoming capital would help make England more prosperous, and so he invited a group of Jewish merchants to join him in his new kingdom. They were not, however, allowed to own land or participate in trade, and were primarily confined to being financiers and moneylenders. For the next 100 years, Jewish communities flourished, growing up in many cities and towns, including Norwich, Lincoln, York, Hull, and Oxford. Compared to the vast majority of the population, the Jewish people were among the most literate and numerate. Under the protection and will of the crown, Jews were mainly treated with favour. It may have been contemptuous favour, but it was favour nonetheless. Other than this, not much is known about the early history of British Jews, until the beginning of the reign of Henry I in 1100. He, in fact, issued a charter that protected Jews, which went on to become imitated and referred to for the next two centuries. This charter guaranteed free movement throughout the country, exemption from ordinary toll taxes, and provisions to ensure fair trial. This made the Jews the king's protected people, existing for his own advantage. This led to a 35-year period of prosperity and growth for Britain's Jews. When Henry died in 1135, with no surviving heir, Britain was plunged into a chaotic war between Henry's daughter, Matilda, and her cousin, Stephen. Returning from France to lay her claim to the throne, Matilda and Stephen fought to a stalemate. Stephen was unable to provide anyone with any kind of security, and the Jews were no different, despite the previous royal charter. During the 19-year-long stalemate, law and order broke down, and it is believed that the Jews abandoned any kind of trade and focused on moneylending, a much-needed profession that only they were permitted to do. Christians were forbade from lending money as they believed it was the sin of usury and so were more than happy to leave it to the Jews, who they believed would be damned anyway. Then, in 1144, things began to fall apart. A 12-year-old boy named William was found murdered in the woods outside Norwich. The blame was very quickly placed at the feet of the Jews. While there was little to no evidence of any member of the Jewish community being involved, 
as a cult around William grew and he began to be recognised as a martyr, the stories around his death expanded and began to claim that this was a ritualistic murder committed by the Jews. Thomas of Monmouth, a Benedictine monk and chronicler, did little to help the matter, successfully stoking the fire, as he claimed that William had been stripped, tortured and crucified by a group of Jews, believing that they would regain control of Israel if they sacrificed a Christian child each year. As this story began to be circulated, and as the king began to come out and intervene on the behalf of the Jews, anti-Jewish sentiment began to grow. Many other unsolved child murders were similarly attributed to the Jewish communities and involved into the blood libel against the Jews. This only got worse under the new king, Henry II, in 1154. Henry's reign was actually a period of significant prosperity for the Jews, and this increased the resentment from the rest of the population. The blood libel that had arguably begun in 1144 grew and worsened as Jewish leaders began to be executed and ordinary Jews massacred. For example, in 1190, under the reign of Richard I, with crusading fervour growing on the continent and spreading to Britain, an estimated 150 Jews were killed in one of the worst anti-Semitic massacres of the Middle Ages. As the mayor of York was away on the Third Crusade, a fire broke out in the city, and some citizens took advantage of the chaos and broke into Jewish homes, looting and killing everyone inside. The Jews of York headed to the site of Clifford's Tower, seeking refuge with the Keeper of the King's Tower. Inside the tower, as time wore on, the trust between the Keeper and the terrified Jews broke down. And when the keeper left on other business, the Jews refused him entry on his return. This, being an act of treason, brought troops to join the mob that had surrounded the tower. As the siege continued and Friday came around, the Jews began to realise that they could not hold out. And on the day of the Great Sabbath, all the Jews in the tower committed suicide the father of each family killing his wife and children before taking his own life. As they died, their possessions were set on fire around them, enveloping the timber tower. Despite all this, Richard continued to offer the Jews protection, reissuing orders of safety and created methods for better collecting and protecting Jewish records. His brother and heir, John, depleted even the wealthiest of Jews with his incompetent and useless reign. And his successor, Henry III, did little better, trying to squeeze about £70,000 out of a population of just 5,000. To achieve this, many Jews had to sell off their properties and mortgage bonds to wealthy nobles. During the mid-13th century, mass violence against the Jews spiked again, despite the continued presence of charters and orders declaring the protection of the Jews. This legal position didn't change until the reign of Edward I, when he began to take more control of the Jewish communities, instituting restrictive laws, denying them the ability to take any more property into bond, which meant that they could no longer lend money. 
as their methods of income were stripped from them and their properties began to be confiscated, the population of Jews diminished. As the Crusades stepped up again during the 1280s and the crusading zeal penetrated Britain again, the increased resentment of the Jews forced Edward to expel all of them from Britain in 1290. And from here, the history of the Jews in Britain goes dark. There is no real evidence of there being any more than one or two Jews in Britain until 1655. However, some sources suggest that there may have been crypto-Jews, or those Jews who profess to be of another faith while practicing Judaism in secret, living in Britain before that time. In 1655, a delegation of Jews led by a rabbi named Manasseh ben Israel arrived in London to petition Cromwell to allow the readmission of the Jews into Britain. They held conferences and discussed the matter intently, and while the outcome remained inconclusive, it was clear that the Jews were to be more widely tolerated in the country. This saw an influx of Jews from Holland, Spain and Portugal, almost all of whom had also been expelled from their home nations, and by 1690, about 400 Jews had settled in Britain. An emblem of the progress in the social status of Jews in Britain was Solomon de Medina, the first Jew to be knighted in 1700. A year later, Britain's first purpose-built synagogue would be erected, which has become the only building in Europe where Jewish worship has continued without interruption for more than 300 years. Just over 50 years later, in 1753, the so-called Jew Bill was passed, which allowed Jews to be naturalised as British citizens. And although it was passed in the House of Lords, it fell through in Commons, as the Tories decried an abandonment of Christianity. It was given royal assent and passed, but was repealed a year later due to widespread opposition. Despite the restrictions placed on them, the historian William Rubenstein suggests that anti-Semitism was actually lower in the United Kingdom than in a number of European countries. This could have been for a number of reasons. That the Protestants shared an emphasis on the Old Testament, a distrust of Catholicism, and a perception of being the chosen people of God with the Jews. With there being fewer Jews in Britain, they had a lesser role in commercial and financial matters than compared to some other European countries, which meant the conflicts that would usually arise didn't come to the fore. And with Britain's early adoption of more liberal political policies, individual and civil liberties were promoted. As the years went on, the perception of Jews was aided by their contributions to British society, economically, socially and in sport. For example, Nathan Meyer von Rothschild set up the NM Rothschild and Sons Bank that would go on to fund Wellington in the Napoleonic Wars, finance the 1875 purchase of Egypt's share of the Suez Canal, and help to fund the development of the British South Africa Company by Cecil Rhodes. Then, in 1868, the status of Jews in Britain came to a head when Benjamin Disraeli, a baptised Christian of Jewish parentage, became Prime Minister. 
His baptism as a Christian qualified him for office and presented no restrictions against the mandated Christian oath of office. By 1882, there were 46,000 Jews living in Britain, and by 1890, the emancipation of the Jews was complete. Since 1858, there has never not been a practicing Jew in Parliament. Synagogues were accepted and built openly, and many Jews moved to wealthier parts of London as their fortunes brightened. Now, during the 1880s and early 1900s, mass pogroms and anti-Semitic laws in Russia and Eastern Europe forced millions of Jews to flee, with about 140,000 arriving in Britain. This caused the Jewish population to explode, going from 46,000 in 1880 to 250,000 in, by 1919. They centred themselves in the industrial heartlands, their communities growing especially in London, Manchester and Leeds. These communities generally embraced assimilating into British culture, setting up Hebrew and Yiddish newspapers and youth movements for young Jews. Their unrestricted immigration was curtailed in 1905 with the introduction of the Aliens Act, which, some historians argue, cut Eastern European Jewish immigration by a third. This act had been a response to increasing pressure and outcry from right-wing groups such as the British Brothers League. They proclaimed that Britain should not become the dumping ground for the scum of Europe and that the dirty, destitute, diseased, verminous and criminal foreigner who dumps himself on our soil and rates simultaneously shall be forbidden to land. This anti-Semitism came to a violent head in South Wales in 1902 and 1903, where Jews were assaulted. The 1905 Aliens Act was later replaced by the 1919 Act of the same name, a much more stringent updated version. As the years rolled on and the First World War broke out in 1914, over 50,000 Jews served for Britain on the front lines, with over 10,000 being killed. There was an all-Jewish regiment, the Jewish Legion, that fought in Palestine, that led to the later Palestinian Mandate and the Balfour Declaration that agreed to try and create a homeland for the Jews in Palestine. In the interwar years, it would be into sport that the Jews would excel, with men like Harold Abrams winning the gold medal in the 100-metre sprint at the 1924 Olympics. The Jews also dominated the boxing scene as professional and amateur fighters, managers, promoters, coaches and spectators, as well as gamblers and even as criminals trying to fix the fights. The high profile gained from these actions helped to decrease anti-Semitism and increase their acceptance. As the 1930s took hold, Britain was not overly receptive to the influx of refugee Jews from Germany, Austria, Italy and Poland and the rest of fascist Europe. As the war broke out, many Jews joined the armed forces and served for their country, against an ideology that would have them all massacred. And even after the war, this ideology in Britain would persist in the forms of Oswald Mosley and the British Union of Fascists. They would hold anti-Semitic rallies and protests. 
In response to these rallies, a group of young Jews going by the name The 43 Group was founded in 1946, determined to eradicate fascism in Britain, no matter what it took. For four years, they fought against fascism and anti-Semitism, facing riots in Manchester, Liverpool and other similar cities. They would be successful in quelling a resurgence of fascism in Britain, voluntarily disbanding in 1950, as they felt the immediate threat had passed. Over the next decades, anti-Semitic feeling would wax and wane, with many today sensing a worrying upturn in anti-Semitic sentiments. With the election of Jeremy Corbyn to the leader of the Labour Party in 2015, the shadow of anti-Semitic suspicions fell upon the party. While an official investigation found that the Labour Party was not overrun by anti-Semitism, they have suspended a number of members over anti-Semitic comments. Many within the party have been forced to re-evaluate their own personal views, the views held by their party and by their leader. With the recent events with the Black Lives Matter protests and the increased focus on racial issues, anti-Semitism has also once again come to the fore. Social media has, as we saw with the outcry after the death of George Floyd in America, become a battleground to fight the hatred. The most recent event has been a 48-hour Twitter boycott starting on the 27th of July 2020, in which a number of well-known figures are protesting the platform's alleged lack of action on anti-Semitic tweets. This comes as a response to a slew of anti-Semitic tweets that were posted by Wiley, a world-renowned rapper, grime artist and DJ, and Twitter were deemed to have been too slow to remove them. If 2020 has taught us anything, it is that Britain, along with many countries worldwide, has dark, deeply embedded issues to deal with, and that we, as a population, are passionately ready and willing to fight against them, no matter the cost. Thank you very much for listening to the Present History Podcast. I hope that this has been enlightening, helpful and empowering, but please don't leave it here. There is so much more research you can do and so much deeper you can go. We'll see you next time on the next episode of the Present History Podcast. Podcast.